You ever wondered why sometimes on just any topic you can find at least two responses? You love liver, I hate liver. You love beets, I hate beets. You love the Packers, I feel a little differently about the Packers, okay? I love the Vikings, you feel a little differently about the Vikings. You had our new pastor over in Superior, Pastor Derek, he's a Cowboys fan. So we've got all kinds of different opinions around here on simple things like that. And almost any topic you can find people with varying opinions and varying ideas. But sometimes those different responses are, are on things that are a little bit more serious, right? Liver, maybe not a big deal for you unless it was like for me as a kid. My mom was a saint. You know, I just think of my mom. There's hardly, in fact, this is probably the only thing I can ever think anything negative about my mom was that she made beets and liver in the same meal. And I gagged on both of those things, right? So we have all kinds of like light things, but the serious things of life and some of the serious things about the gospel are going to bring about two kinds of responses. And some people's responses are going to be more serious as well, as we just read as we were reading in this text. That's where we're going to find ourselves in this series through the book of Acts. We're going to, we're going to find ourselves in a church, in a, in a location, where two different opinions are going to rise up and respond to what they're hearing. Two different approaches and opinions and worldviews. They're going to hear the same message. This is my point with my little silly introduction there, is that they're going to hear the same message and they're going to respond in two different ways. And where we find ourselves is in a church in Thessalonica that had enough Jewish population that they were able to have a synagogue. And as Paul's custom was, whenever he went to a new town, he would find the synagogue. And, and him being a Pharisee, he could go in there and teach and have a connection with people. And so he went in there and he would stand up and start to have discussions about things, particularly about who Jesus was. And every time that he would go into these synagogues, he would look at the Old Testament scripture and pointing people to Jesus, and people would respond. But they're going to respond in different ways. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So as is my practice, we're just going to dive in. We're not going to have a lot of PowerPoint this morning. You're just going to have to follow along, and I hope you have your scriptures or pull out your phone. And we're just going to look at these verses, and we're going to see what Paul is doing here and the responses that he's getting. And what happens is when he goes into the synagogue in verse 2, and as was his custom, and he begins to reason from the scriptures. So he's not just coming in there with personal thoughts and ideas. He's taking the scriptures and he's reasoning from the scriptures. And here's what verse 3 says, explaining and proving. And this is something we can read over really fast, guys, and miss the point of what's happening here. He was explaining and proving that it was necessary first for the Christ to suffer and then for the Christ to rise from the dead, and then that Jesus was the Christ. So there are three things that he's starting out with, three things that he teaches everywhere he goes. And we're going to take a moment this morning just to unpack that part before we move on, because I want to remind you, these are the three things of the gospel that are pretty central, and, and this is what Paul was preaching everywhere he went. The first one was that the Christ had to suffer. Now, suffering is not something we like to talk a lot about in our culture. But it is crucial that we understand that the Christ had to suffer. And this is what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.8. For Christ also suffered, there it is, once for sins, the righteous one, Christ, for the unrighteous one, me, you, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive in the Spirit. This is an important picture that the Christ had to suffer for my sin and your sin, for the unrighteous, a righteous one had to suffer. Not just die, but actually suffer, and he had to experience the punishment of God. This is what Romans chapter 3 says, verses 1 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now here it is, listen to this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And, And what that means is that God put him forward as a sacrifice in our place. That God said someone needed to to pay the price for my personal sin and your personal sin. And that person was going to be Jesus and he was going to experience the wrath of God. He was going to experience the judgment of God that I should experience. Now you're saying, Pastor Dean, you already say you're a preacher of good news. You're starting out kind of fast here today. But this is what the text is telling us, that, that he went in and reasoned with them about why Christ had to suffer. And the reason that is so important, and I I want you to catch this this morning now, it reminds us of the seriousness of our personal sin. It's not just my sin in totality. Here's how I like to think about it so often. I'm a sinner. Jesus paid the price for my sin. That's awesome. Remember, you don't have to deal with this all week long. I do. (laughs) Jesus suffered for my individual specific sin. That word that I spoke in a way that was sinful, Jesus paid a price for that. That thought that it shouldn't have thought, that anger towards someone, whether in the heart or outwardly. I mean, you fill, it, you fill in the blank. You fill in your last 24 hours. The sin of that last 24 hours, your specific sin, Jesus suffered for. Jesus experienced God's judgment for. Now, that should do two things in us. Thinking of each individual sin. Now, a lot of times preachers are going to tell you, don't think like that, you're going to be overwhelmed. That would be true if I didn't finish the whole thing, right? (laughs) But the first thing that does need to happen is for me to grieve over my sin. For me to be able to say, oh, that was ugly. And take it farther than that, oh, Jesus experienced the wrath of God for that that I should have. So there should be two things when Paul is reasoning with them about the suffering of Christ and why it's important that we spend some time talking about the suffering of Christ is that it should affect me in two ways. The first way is it should grieve me over my sin. And I should see the seriousness of my individual sin, not just my sin nature, not just that I am a sinner, but that I have actually sinned, and I've actually sinned recently, and I actually have to stop and go, oh my goodness, Jesus had to suffer and pay for that. This is serious business. But it should cause me to do the other thing I'm about to say, and this is the good news, it should also cause me to rejoice and to worship. It should cause me to go, oh my goodness, that sin, the perfect, righteous, 
never had done anything wrong, Lamb of God, who created the world and has done nothing but good and right and perfection, came down in the flesh and then was willing to suffer on the cross for my individual sin, that grieves me. And then that causes me to rejoice and say, I just want to worship him. I just want to say, worship team, come back up and let's go. (laughs) And let's just sing praises to the Jesus who would do that. Let's just bow down and remember and rejoice and worship the Jesus who would do that on our behalf. So when Paul is arguing this in the synagogue, it is not something light and, oh, Jesus had to suffer. No, he's trying to say to them, hey, your sin, your particular individual sin, Jesus had to pay for that. And so, because he did that, you should rejoice and worship him and give your life to him. Your world, as we're going to look at in this passage, should be turned upside down by him because he suffered for you. He went to the cross for you. So I hope this morning that you'll hear both sides of that coin, that you will see your sin and go, it's serious. Because Christ, the only way for it to be atoned for was Christ had to suffer for it. But it should cause me to worship and praise him going, wow. So when I sin, I should have this sense of like, oh, grieving. And then I should have this sense of like, Jesus, you're the only place I can grab onto. I'm in trouble here. And then I want to worship him and rejoice and praise him. So Paul is not just in two, three words there, teaching that Christ is necessary for him to suffer. He was telling them the seriousness of their sin and the seriousness of the, uh, of the price that Christ paid so that they would stop and go, wow, I want to worship him. Then the second thing it tells us that he, he taught them was that it was necessary, not only that he should suffer, but necessary that he should rise from the dead. Here's what the Enduring Word commentary says. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead also matters because our justification and our eternity hinges on it. This is what Romans 4.25 said. He was delivered over to death. He was given to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Everything he did, look what we get from it. He was delivered over to death for our sins, was willing to suffer for them, and then he was raised to life so that we could be justified. And then this is what 1 Corinthians 15 says, if, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. So is your faith. In fact, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins, and believers who died are lost. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 18. If that has not happened, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, we're lost. That's how important it is to believe that Christ has suffered for us so we understand our sin and what he, the price he's paid, but that he had to rise again from the dead or our faith is worthless because the ultimate thing that he defeated was the ultimate result of sin, which is death. And the good news is that he defeated death, so that is not something that should weigh over me all the time, the fear of it and the concern of it. While it's still real, he has defeated it. And so Paul, the crucial things he was teaching in the synagogue, that Christ needed to suffer and that he needed to rise from the dead. Again, from the Enduring Word commentary, Jesus rose from the dead and Paul presents that event as the only thing that gives us hope in this life. Christ was the first to permanently rise from the dead. This is 
Again, 1 Corinthians 15, now 20 to 22. But in fact, Christ has raised from the dead. Listen to what Paul's saying. It is a fact, and I'm going to state it today. It is a fact that Christ has raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and this is why it's important that he, he's risen from the dead. By a man, Adam's sin came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. You and I have the hope of the resurrection of the dead because Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. I can't give you better news than that today, that your sin is serious, but Jesus was willing to suffer and die for it, and then God raised him from the dead so that you and I don't have to worry about our eternal state, that I can know that I'm going to be in right relationship with God for all of eternity. That's awesome news. <laughs> That's good news. And the final thing he says in his little, little sermon that he's reasoning with them about is that Jesus is the Christ, that he indeed was the Messiah. He indeed was the one that the Old Testament had been pointing to that was going to come and change everything, that he was going to come and provide atonement for all who believed. And so that's what he's saying, that Jesus, I'm arguing now that the Christ came and suffered he rose from the dead and that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Now, this is what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, verse 22. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He's saying this is really important that we understand that Jesus is the Christ. To say that he's not, that person is a liar. In fact, he goes on to say, this is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. It's not just denying that Jesus is the Christ. You're actually joining on the other side when you do that. But he's trying to make it clear that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. This is what he says in 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes what? That Jesus is the Christ has been, and has been born of... Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So that's his message. Christ had to suffer. I'm going to explain to you why. Christ had to die and raise from the dead. And by the way, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And here's the good news in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded. They heard that message and some of them said, yes, you are right. Remember those two ways of responding to any given thing? One response to the message of Jesus suffering, rising again from the dead, and being the Christ, a bunch of them raised their hand and said, I'm persuaded, Paul, and I want to join you. And so they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many, listen to what he says, of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Why that's a little bit important is because all of a sudden we're seeing that these people who are responding to this message are from all kinds of different walks of life. Jews and Gentiles responding to this message. It says, some were persuaded, which were the Jews, and did a many, great many devout Greeks who were there, Greeks who were outside of the faith, of the Jewish faith, were coming and seeking in the synagogue, and they came to faith. And so now, you, and, and I don't have time to go into how much animosity there were between Jews and Gentiles at that time, but it's, you talk about some of the unrest we have today, it's nothing like what was going on between those two people groups, and now here they are, joining together in belief and joining together and were persuaded that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And then it says men and women, which also was something that was a clash at that time. And then it also tells us leading people, people of leadership, prominent in the community. So people of all walks of life, male, men and women, Jews and Gentiles from all different economic um, um, positions in life are all coming together now and have been persuaded and believe. That's good news. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's been doing that for 2,000 years. But then something happened. And this is verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, those who responded differently. So you've got this group that responded over here and said, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. He suffered and died for us. He rose again from the dead. We're going to put our faith in him. And then another group saw that, and they were jealous by what they saw. And taking some wicked men, it tells us in verse 5, men of the rabble. You can just fill in the blank however you want to see men of the rabble. But these are not good guys. These are guys who are troublemakers, used to causing trouble. And they pulled them together and they said, go cause some trouble. And they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. Attacked the house of Jason. And Jason was just a guy who was housing Paul and Silas and some of the others. And they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So this crowd and this mass group began to want to bring Paul out and actually harm him. They go to Jason's house, and when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. So they go there, Paul's gone, they grab this guy Jason, the homeowner, they pull him out before the city council, and they're shouting, and this is what they say, and I love this. Hold on to this, because we're going to kind of unpack this theme throughout. This is what they say about these guys. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here. They've come here also. These guys have been going everywhere, turning the world upside down. <laughs> Man, I'm praying that maybe one day I might stand before the Lord and he might say, you did some upside downing in the world. <laughs> they, whatever they were doing was such a radical impact that people were going, it's just turning people upside down. And that's what they're saying these guys were doing. And Jason has received them. They said, this guy Jason, he housed them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, and his name is Jesus. So they're bringing these accusations. He's claiming that there's another king, and he's causing trouble. And Jason let him stay in the house. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things because they're like, okay, they're causing trouble. And oh, they're saying there's another king? That's getting a little more serious. They're disturbed by it. But not so disturbed that a little money didn't help change their opinion. It says, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They essentially took bail money, took some money and said, all right, if you can get these guys out of here and calm everything down, maybe we'll leave you alone. Listen, Listen to this. This is important. The gospel turns the world upside down. The gospel was so radically different than the culture, and what it teaches is so different that the results in transformed lives were so different that the people around them said, they turned the world upside down. My neighbor is doing weird stuff now. And, and, and here is how it turned the world upside down. They saw things so differently. They saw life differently. In the Roman culture at that time, a dad could decide when a baby was born that that baby shouldn't live typically because it was a female and they would send it out into the trash or they would put it up in the hills to let it die and Christians were going out and finding them. 
And Christians were going and bringing them back in and raising them as their own. That was so radically different that the world around them said, that's the turn of the world upside down. They had such a radically different view of sexuality. Their allegiance changed from being aligned with Caesar to someone higher. They worshipped differently. All of a sudden, they were worshiping Jesus and they were doing things differently. They saw status differently. All of a sudden, they looked at the poor and said the poor mattered where people of status said they didn't. They understood truth differently. They understood money and economics differently. They understood marriage differently. Everything was so radically changed that their neighbors said, they turned the world upside down. This is really weird. We don't like it. They're disrupting what, it feel, what, what we think and how we want to live. And then they would go so far as to say they're acting against the decrees of Caesar. So that's what was happening, such radical transformation and change that the culture around them said, whoa, this does not fit how we see things, and it's upsetting our values and upsetting how we do things. And they just simply said they've turned the world upside down. But that turning the world upside down caused trouble for Jason, caused trouble for others, and they went through this process of being arrested. Paul fled. This is what it says in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they left Thessalonica to go to Berea. And when they arrived, they, that's what they did when they went to Berea. They went into the synagogue again. They're going to turn the world upside down in another town. But in verse 10, we're reminded that sometimes it is okay to flee. Sometimes it is the right thing to get away from the persecution. And the leaders of the time, they didn't all flee, but they did send Paul and Silas away. They said, you guys got to get out of here because we think you're going to be killed. And I just love Paul and Silas go to Berea. And where do they head? Right to the synagogue. To again reason from the scriptures that Christ came to suffer that he rose again from the dead, and that he is the Christ. And it says this, that while he was reasoning with them in Berea, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. This is what they did. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They received it first with eagerness. Let me ask you something today. Do you receive the word of God with eagerness? Are you looking forward to the word of God speaking into your life, bringing about correction, bringing about new insight, bringing about understanding of the truth? They were eager to understand what the scriptures were saying about the Christ. They were eager to know and receive the word. It's a great picture that he comes and they were eager for it. They're like, yeah, give us more, give us more. And they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. Now, this is super important. And so I'm going to ask you to come back if you've lost me this morning. So take a deep breath. Shake your head. Get all the distractions out of your brain right now because this is important. They examined the scriptures daily. To know what is true about the gospel. To know what is true about God and his character and his nature to know what is true about Jesus, to know what is true about the way to salvation, to know what is true about how we're supposed to live, we have to be in the word. There's just no other way to get around this. And I hope you know by now, those of you who are here on a regular basis, that I'm not a legalist. 
I don't try to manipulate or guilt you into things, but I will plead with you, okay? Hear me this morning pleading with you to examine the scriptures daily. Here's why. The health of our church, your personal spiritual health, and the spreading of the gospel hinges on that. You personally examining the scripture daily, the health of our church, your personal spiritual health, and the proclamation of the gospel, that is the foundation of it. If we are not in the word daily, then we are not going to be able to grow spiritually. If we are not examining the scripture daily, the health of the church, we don't like to think about this this much, but, but we're a body. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, my eye has been kind of bugging me this week after I smack it with a stick, right? And when you smack your eye with a stick, the rest of the body gets impacted by it. You are, are not alone. You are part of a body. And where you're at in your spiritual journey impacts all of us. Where I'm at in my, in my spiritual journey impacts you. I want you to think of the person to the left or to the right, to the front or behind you. Your spiritual journey impacts their lives. And so the health of our church is based on your spiritual journey and my spiritual journey. And I want to tell you that we cannot grow in our spiritual lives without examining the scriptures on a regular basis. And without that, our church, your spiritual life, and the proclamation of the gospel in our community will not prevail. And it will not prevail against all the storms that are in front of us. See, that's my point. There are some storms that we're seeing here in Acts 17 that they were able to withstand because of these things, because they examined the scriptures daily. And the church and the individual spiritual lives and the spreading of the gospel, the foundation of that was relying on being in the scriptures daily. And again, I'm not trying to guilt people. That's not the way to do it. I'm just going to invite you and plead with you to say, if you want to see this church healthy, if you want to see your spiritual life healthy, and you want to see the gospel going forth, then I'm pleading with you to examine the scriptures daily. Because that's how God reveals himself to us and gives us strength and power to do the things that we need to do in a world that is going to be in opposition to us. The oppositions are... I've been around a little bit. I hate to always say it, but, you know, this color hair tells you I've been around. I went gray pretty early, though, so, but I've been around for a while. And culture and the world has changed in time, right? And I've seen confrontation and I've seen struggle, and that's not going to stop. It's going to look different and come in different forms. What I'm looking for is to, to get my church to be prepared that as they stand on the word, no matter what comes, they're going to stand. They're going to be resilient. They're going to look at it and go, well, well, we saw it back in Acts 17. So 2,000 years later, why should I be surprised? And we stand on the word of God. And we turn the world upside down. So they examined... And they were more noble because they received it with an eagerness and they daily sought the scriptures. And then verse 12, listen to this. Here's the good news. Many of them therefore believed. As they examined the scriptures and they heard the teaching, many believed. With not again, he says, with not a few Greek women and high standing men as well. So now we got the Jew and Greek again, men and women, different um, economic status. 
Here's the thing I love about this verse. Many believed. Do you know that over 15 times New Testament, it says many believed. Do you know how many times that I heard and I feel sometimes like nobody's ever going to (laughs) believe? Many believe. And oh, by the way, you're part of that. You believed at some point. So if you could believe at some point, why can't that coworker of yours? Why can't it be that neighbor of yours? It's, it's funny how our minds get, and I've just been in the church my whole life, and so I know how they can get, because mind gets that way sometimes, and we look around, and we say, nobody's coming to faith in Jesus. Oh, well, I came to faith in Jesus, but nobody else is coming to faith in Jesus. Oh, well, that person came to faith in Jesus, but nobody else is coming to, and we miss when God is doing his work. Many believe, and many will continue to believe. This is the part that's so awesome. Don't lose heart. There are many who will believe, and you're one of them. And there are many yet to believe. And we got some empty seats here. And just imagine, those seats aren't going to stay empty if we do what God's called us to do, right? I'm excited to think about what new believers are going to be coming into this church. What person is going to have that testimony of what, I came to Jesus. Let me tell you about it. I just came to Jesus. I want to be baptized. I want to tell you about my, my story. There are many yet to believe. There are many yet to believe in Duluth. How many are going to be a part of our fellowship that we don't even know yet? I'm looking forward to having fellowship in that six months with somebody I haven't even known today. That's pretty awesome. Please don't lose heart. Please remember what the scriptures say. Many believed. In this context, with the persecution, with the stuff going on, many still believed. And then it happens again, verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they decided to send some agitators and stirred up the crowd there too. So this is what happened. They went, many believed, opposition. Same message, two responses, belief, opposition. So the agitators came, they stirred up the crowds. What should we take from that? Let's, here's what I just would really like for you to think about. Let's not be worried or surprised when it happens. When the agitators and those who stir up the crowd come about, let's not be surprised. Let's bring the gospel. And then it says in verse 14, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off again. Paul was important. They didn't want anything to happen to him at this point. They sent him off on his way to the sea by Silas, and, but Silas and Timothy remained there. This is verse 14. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul fled, and Silas and Timothy remained, strengthened the church, and eventually joined in. Now, the question becomes, what are we going to do with all this? Okay, that was a lot of stuff there. First, let me give you what I I started sharing this with you a couple weeks ago, that I'm going to hopefully every sermon, most every sermon, have a part that I call my pastoral burden. What's my pastoral burden? As your pastor, what is my burden from this passage? And then we'll look at some practical applications. First, my pastoral burden is that the gospel, re, that the gospel would rearrange your whole world. Let me ask you this. Has that happened for you? It can't be an add-on or something that's put on the side it turns everything upside down. It rearranges your whole world. And so my, my pastoral burden for you this morning is that the, knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ would rearrange your whole world and how you see things and how you understand things and what your life is about. That's my pastoral burden. 
And then my other part of my pastoral burden from this text is that we would understand the gospel well, that we would stand firmly on these three things, that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus did suffer for our sins, and Jesus did defeat sin and death by rising again from the dead. That you would grab onto those things and hold on to them and rejoice in them and go, that's so awesome. Jesus is the Christ. He suffered for our sins. He died and was raised again from the dead. My pastoral burden this morning is that, that, that we're growing deeper in the word, that we would be people who are people of the word, and that each one of us would walk out of here with a little bit of a challenge today of going, how am I going to get into the word and examine it daily? Fourth, that we're, my pastoral burden is that this message might help us to be more resilient in our faith. And that we might be able to withstand some of the pressures that are going to come our way in your workplace, through your neighbors, through social media, wherever it comes, that you might be able to stand firm in your faith, even when these kinds of pressures, even when agitators and others come and stir up the crowd. And then my last pastoral burden was that this neighborhood and this community would be turned upside down and that we would be a church that people would say that church like these disciples turned the world upside down brought a new perspective that set people free and changed the course of their lives you know when I worked in prison ministry one of the beautiful things of the gospel was seeing somebody's life so radically changed the course of their life going another direction. Well, guess what? That's what the gospel's done for you too. Sometimes I shudder to think where I might be without the gospel. And to know that Christ comes and changes us and that he turns it upside down. That's my prayer that we would be known as an upside down turning of the community and world and culture church. That would be so different that people go, wow, they're upside down over there. They see and do life differently. All right, I'm going to close this with some application, all right? Some real-life application. First, Jesus had to suffer for your sin. I want to invite you this morning to see the seriousness of your sin and then to praise Jesus for suffering for your sin to see the seriousness of your individual actions and choices, and then turn to Jesus and praise him that he was willing to suffer for those particular things. Second, I want to remind you and have you grab onto that Jesus had to die and be raised from the dead and praise God for raising him from the dead. I, my hope an application that I hope you take today is that you will find peace and strength in knowing that Jesus defeated death. That the people that we love that have gone on before us, we know we will see them again someday. That's not a hope. That's not a wondering. That's a fact. And to hold on to that today because that's the very reason Jesus rose from the dead. To defeat death so that we could spend eternity in his presence. So I hope that you'll find peace and strength in that. 
Third application is, has the teaching of the Bible and the gospel turned your world upside down? I want you to wrestle with that question. The gospel rearranges our whole world. Who we are, how we live, what you live for, how you think. Have you allowed the gospel to turn it upside down? And, and to radically change it to, so that you see things differently? That you yourself could say, whoa, he turned the whole thing upside down for me. Not just that somebody else would see it and say, well, he turned your life upside down, but you can say he turned everything upside down. Who I am, how I live, what I think about, what I'm living for is radically different than what it used to be. Fourth, are you spending time in the word? I'm pleading with you this morning. What is your plan to examine the scriptures? What a gift that we have, that we have the very words of God that he spoke and that he kept together for all these thousands of years so that we could have it. What's your plan to examine it? I'm gonna do just a slight commercial here this morning, but if you are not on the list of where we send out a weekly email where we just give a recap of the sermon, I'm gonna invite you to take that little slip, uh, the bulletin, and just tear it off and put your name and email on that and throw it in the offering plate and because I'm going to start sending out over the next few weeks just some ideas, some practical ideas to help you get in the scripture. The easiest way to do that is sending out through email. So I'm going to invite you to that. Even if you don't attend here regularly and you would like to get those, uh, the email about some practical ways to get into the scriptures. Sometimes people don't examine the scriptures because they think, I don't know how to do it. I got some really easy practical things that I'm going to give you. I'm going to just plead with you that you would spend time examining the scriptures. And our last application is this. My hope is that you'll walk away today desiring a resilient faith that here's the thing. Here's what's most important today. You cannot be apathetic in the world that we live in. If you are apathetic about your faith, you will not endure. You will not have faith somewhere down in the future. If at this point right now, you're apathetic about it. The world and all the pressures that we see here in Acts chapter 17, it's going to wipe it away. My prayer is that you would have a resilient faith and that you would say today, I don't want an apathetic faith. I want to be all in. I want an upside down turning faith. I want them to turn my life upside down so that it starts to look more like Jesus. Now, here's the thing about all this all this is good news. I think it's all great news, it's made, but it's all made available to us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I think this is awesome news that my life can be turned upside down by the God who created me and who designed me, and he can do the work in me, and he's going to do all of it, and he did all of this by Christ dying on the cross. So I hope this morning you walk away with hearing good news, good news of the radical work the living God can do in the lives of people. In Acts 17, we saw it, and there were two responses. One said no, and became agitators, but many believed. Where are you this morning? Which place are you in? Because if you're in the middle, you're really over on the side of not believing. Jesus is asking for all of it but he offers all of it too. That's the great part. So I wanna invite you this morning to bow your heads 
and spend a moment where you just hear and listen to what the Lord might be saying to you. And I really hope that wherever you're at today that you would have some conversations about this with people. But if you're at that place today where you're not sure if you're all in, and if you're not sure that you want him to turn your life upside down, I'm gonna invite you to consider what Jesus wants to do in your life today. And maybe you've been following him, but you haven't been all in. You've been holding on to some stuff, say, I don't want him to mess with that. He wants to turn it all upside down, inside out, rearrange it all for your good and for his glory.